welcome to Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom, the behind-the-scenes podcast about everything Dwight, special quarantine edition. I'm Josh Breslow, and I play Yakopo. Today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 6, Lake Monster, written by David Gallagher, directed by Jeff Hunt. Guest starring Catherine Lidstone, Lauren Boyd, Chase Stephen Anderson, and Christian Gabriel Anderson. As always, we have a blanket spoiler alert. So if you haven't watched Season 3, Episode 6 yet, stop whatever you're doing. You can... <laughs> later and watch Lake Monster, either on BYU TV or at byutv.com slash Dwight. And a little extra word. We usually record the podcast in the wonderful podcast booth at the Comedy Store in West Hollywood. However, due to the coronavirus quarantine, we are recording this and future episodes from our respective homes via Skype. We very much appreciate your understanding regarding the audio quality, and we'll be back to our usual sound as soon as we're able. Now, a quick recap. Dwight and Greta join Woodside High's team of journalists on the Daily Woodchuck for the extra credit one of them sorely needs in English, it's definitely Greta, when the paper's editor, Zeke, brings in a story about sightings of a monster in Woodside Lake. A lake monster, one might say. Now Dwight and Greta need to do everything in their power to stop Zeke and the residents of Woodside from discovering the existence of Winnie, their friendly neighborhood water dragon, lest the peasants lose their minds and Woodside is overrun and destroyed by tourists. Now that everyone's been brought up to date, let's get to our guests. Back with us is one of the creators and showrunners of Dwight and Shining Armor, Brian J. Adams. Hello, Josh. It's good to not be with you today. <laughs> it's good to not be with you too, my friend. And three brand new guests. First, the man who will get a scoop, even if it means sleeping in his office or waiting in a tree, the man behind Zeke, Christian Gabriel Anderson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's good to have you here, Christian. Next, a woman who needs no introduction because you can hear her screaming from Yon Lake, our Wyvern Winnie, Catherine Lidstone. Well, hello. <laughs> hello, Catherine. Welcome. And finally, a man who does need an introduction because even though we get to see him all the time, you don't because he's behind the camera directing the majority of our episodes, the inimitable Jeff Hunt. Hi, all. Super happy to be here. Finally get on the podcast. Yeah, we're excited to have you, man. Uh, welcome to everyone. Brian. We've had a couple moments in episode where Dwight needed to cover up Greta and Baldrick's true identities going all the way back to the pilot, but Lake Monster is the first episode where protecting the truth about what's happening in Woodside is the focus of the plot. Why now? That's part of the fun about this is that that Greta and Baldrick aren't terribly concerned uh, about you know any sort of cover-up. Uh, they're 100% honest all the time. Uh, however... Dwight understands that there's a different level of uh, panic or insanity that could ensue from this. If Greta wants to go around saying that she's a medieval princess, there's no problem with that. Uh, but uh, we really did hide a lake monster in Woodside Lake uh, in season one, and that lake monster is still there. And Dwight knows that if we really see a dragon come out of the lake, if the, if the residents of Woodside really see that, that's going to be a much, you know, a problem on a totally different level. And it's also a very Dwightish reaction uh, to be mostly concerned about ruining the feel of Woodside because of the increase in tourism. Also, this is not going to be the last time that Dwight has to try and throw Zeke off the scent. Uh, so Zeke is, is a special case, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. We will. And yeah, Zeke is really a wrench in all the plans of our main characters, uh, and it's a really fun thing to watch that dynamic play out. We will talk about that in a moment. So, Jeff, we've had a couple other directors on the podcast so far. 
Al Gordon and James Wahlberg, but you, my friend, have directed the vast majority of the show's episodes. So how do you do prep production and post schedule wise? Does your work on multiple episodes overlap? How do you handle that? Um, Well, these last uh, couple of seasons where I was there full time as a producer, also, I'm either prepping or I'm directing. And when I'm directing, I'm in the editing room uh, late after we finish shooting. Uh, it's been really challenging this 20 run. I directed every other episode. So it was, it was a full time prepping shooting and then moonlighting in the uh, editing room with the editors trying to get the episodes into a director's cut. And on top of that, I believe we were block shooting some episodes at the same time. So you were actually shooting two episodes often within the same week. When you schedule stuff like that, the pre-production meetings, is that you and Banks sitting down? Is that you and the AD? How do, how do you figure out that schedule so that it's not complete insanity? So all the scheduling is done by the first assistant director and the director. So when we get the script, and probably the only reason that we were able to pull this off in the way we did is that Leanne and Brian just pump scripts out. Like no other show out of the... All the network shows I've been on over the last 20 years of directing, uh, we almost started with a complete lineup of scripts. So we broke a lot of the scripts down before we started shooting the 20 block. But yeah, it's you start day one of prep. Uh, AD comes in with what's called a strip board, which is every scene broken down in the script. And we just sit there and we start looking at what fits into what locations. And it's really challenging when you have... So many scenes, even that it's only a 20, what's our final airtime? 22 something. And trying to make that all puzzle work is uh, kind of the magic of the AD. And trying to, as a director, you got to really look at, you know, what do I need for each scene? What kind of time? I've heard a lot of people say, oh, well, that scene's not that big a deal. And this, I've never directed that scene yet in my career. That isn't a big deal. They're all incredibly important to me. Um, they're all important to the story. So yeah, it's really that balance of just finding out what you're going to give to each piece and what time it deserves. Lake Monster was a really tough episode because we had so many locations and all the lake stuff and it poured rain on us, which you can see the very first. So when they first arrive at the lake, right before when he comes out, and they're looking out, and Hexel is calling, and that was a pretty magical moment. But anyway, in the footage, in the big wide shot from the back, you look, and you can barely see the rain starting on the lake. Okay, then the rest of the footage for all the scenes, when Winnie comes out, Zeke comes in, all of that, Zeke leaves, totally shot like weeks later, because it poured rain on us. We couldn't go back. We had to stay with the schedule we had and go to another scene's for another episode and we had to go back and do it again. So trying to put all those pieces together is, um, and again, I'll, I'll give a shout out to our line producer, Frank Waldeck, who uh, really is always the puppet master of the schedule with the AD and the director and trying to make all that work and put all that together. Um, it was really something to pull off. And if I could just interject something regarding the prep, I mean, Jeff, um, as a, you know, a producer on the show and as our partner and director has, truly been invaluable uh, in this process from the first episode. And, and one of the things Jeff does uh, a lot in his prep, along with his you know, first AD and, and you know, Frank Waldick, the line producer, Jeff will come to us and say, hey, 
I know you guys wrote it this way, but if we make this small change, that makes the entire episode possible. And, and sometimes they are small changes. I remember in one of the episodes he directed in season one, lessons one through four, one of the scenes was in, in a park where they, they revived, pour all the salt uh, on Baldrick. And he changed that to the back of the grocery store, uh, which saved uh, an entire company move. That's an example of, of one of the things that, you know, Jeff with his you know experience really helps make our show possible. And he has saved so many episodes and honestly, the show uh, in its entirety by coming up with those creative ways that doesn't sacrifice much of the creative, but makes the production possible. And so that's just a quick shout out to Jeff that that's uh, helped us on numerous occasions. Thanks, man. All right. So Christian, let's get you in here. What was the casting process like for you with the show? So the casting process for me was, it was pretty basic. It wasn't anything too special, but... I remember it was an in-person audition for uh, George Pierre, who's a big-time casting director out in Atlanta, Georgia. And I remember having to, I, I was literally, we had graduation practice, so I had on my, my full cap and gown and everything. And I remember having to leave graduation practice. You know, I remember telling all my friends, you know, I got this big audition, you know, this could be really good for me and everything. And I remember leaving kind of like feeling like I was the man or whatever, you know, I had to tell my principal and stuff. I have um, had this audition uh, that I got to go to. Can I leave early? And she was like, yeah, go do your thing. So I remember going down there, taking off my cap and gown and stuff. And I had on basically up underneath, I had like my bow tie, my um, my dress shirt, dress pants, shoes and everything. So I wasn't like, I, did, I almost came with like this costume almost. So I had to sort of kind of take the bow tie off. I didn't want to be too you know, gimmicky, like, I guess you can say, because I remember I, I sort of kind of had a visual for the character for Zeke. He's sort of kind of very studious and, and very professional and just the way he carries himself. I could have easily packed like a t-shirt and some jeans, but I was like, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to, you know, wear a button up because I feel like that's what Zeke would probably most likely wear. And so when I went into the um, office and I saw all the other actors in there auditioning, I remember looking around, I was like, you know, Maybe I overthought this character because I was looking at everybody seeing T-shirts and jeans and stuff. I was like, oh, maybe I did it again. Or maybe I just, you know. And then one of my friends was who was actually auditioning for the part. He was saying, yo, where are you coming from? A prom? Are you coming from prom? I'm like, no, it was a graduation practice. So I was like, ah, I did it. I really did it. So then, you know, I went into the audition. I had to prepare for two scenes. The first scene, the classroom scene. Uh, that I had that big monologue in. And then there was another scene that was actually from another episode. And um, I did that. Uh, felt like I did really great. Uh, the casting director was like, man, you, you killed it. That was amazing. Uh, so I walked out of that with my head held pretty high. And I was like, well, you know, uh, I gave it all. Whatever happens, happens. If I get this part, you know, glory be to God. If I don't, then, you know, I'll move on to something else. But I ended up booking it. And I was so so happy, so excited. Um, and, you know, it was amazing. It was amazing. And the real crowning achievement, you get to be on this podcast because of that. Oh, yeah, audition. definitely. <laughs> definitely. I love that you were at graduation rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just perfect it's the it's like no i'm gonna graduate and i'm gonna go have a career now i'll see you guys later exactly uh, that's so cool all right all right Catherine. let's get you in on this please tell me everything about inventing winnie's language for your audition way back in season one. Oh boy ah uh, this is a saga i guess it's been a few years in the running now but when I first auditioned, I remember the breakdown was very intriguing. It was just like this mythical creature. She snortles, growls, spits, and hisses. And I remember being like, 
if this isn't just the greatest improv moment for any actor to come and tell a story through those four noises, I don't know what is. So I just looked at it like this is going to be really fun regardless of what happens. And it's just a cool muscle to exercise. So when I first had the breakdown, I was like, this is wild and ridiculous. I'm going to just go for it and look like a complete idiot. <laughs> and I'm just going to see what happens. And so I remember uh, I coached it with a friend of mine. We came up with the funniest, most insane noises we could make, sounds we could make, songs we could tie together that were actual pop songs, but sung in dragon language. And then we just put something together that we I brought into the room. And I just remember that the casting directors recognize there's this big scene at the end of the first episode that Winnie's in where she sings her her like not mating call, but it's like a song for her lost skin and she I guess it is kind of a mating call because she's calling to the person the, the dragon that's in the skin right now and so it's like a long lost lover song and I was like I will always love you and so we sang that in dragon wyvernese and it the casting directors completely recognized it they were like and also did you just sing I will always love you and I was like yeah, duh. <laughs> and so they thoroughly enjoyed it. And we had a really fun time. Um, and then we got a call back and it was in front of the director, the first director. And he was like, just wanted to make it, I think, even more like kid friendly. So all the all the language and things that we had come up with was cool with him. But he was like more just like ridiculous faces and literally stick your tongue out of your mouth, make raspberries, like just do silly things. And I was like, OK, <laughs> and so we just kind of really tried to highlight the contrast of it. So like she's very serious and very emotional and then she'll just throw a raspberry out. And it was just like out of nowhere and made everybody laugh every time. So that was kind of the adventure. And I, I think like actually speaking other languages helps with that because when you're learning another language, you have to gauge the emotion of the person who's talking to you more than anything else. And uh, I, I think I really exercised those muscles when I was like, okay, Obviously, this is her language. This is native to her. It makes sense to her. It makes sense to her kind. So how can we do this where it sounds ridiculous to humans, but it really means a lot to her? And so then, you know, really just taking it as seriously as you can while you're doing something as insane and ridiculous as you are is, I think, where the comedy comes in. That's really what sold us uh, on on Catherine's journey. We, we, we saw a lot of uh, auditions and all of them were, you know, funny to one extent or another, but it, it was that heart that Catherine put into it that we really did, we really did understand that this was a language and you could see that she was communicating something that even though we didn't understand, we knew she understood. And that was, that was just such a next level up because honestly, when we sent out this, uh, you know, this casting call, it was really scary because the whole episode, if this doesn't work, the whole episode is unairable. Uh, but then we, when we found uh, what Catherine came up with for the Wyvernese, we realized, oh my gosh, it's not only going to work, it's going to be hilarious. And like touching as well, like Hexla has her, you know, in the, in the first Winnie episode, you know, Hexla starts to cry. And so, you know, Catherine out of, you know, comedic genius, uh, you know, with the touch of heart is really what, what made it work for us. I feel like that's something we keep coming back to is that every guest story, when you talk about the auditions, you end up saying like, everyone was funny, but it was the person who had like this grounded heart. And you look at Macklin, you look at Zeke, you look at even people like Sir Aldred, you, you feel their grounded need in, in the casting for the show. I'll say has <laughs> been fantastic. So Zeke enters the episode and the world of the show, talking to himself, trying to get to the bottom of the disappearance of Pizza Fridays. Way back 
we talked about the introductory moments of Hexala, but those were largely physical. Brian, what kind of work goes into crafting the very first lines of a new character like Zeke on the show? Well, we we took a lot of inspiration for Zeke from J. Jonah Jameson, Peter Parker's, for all the nerds out there, uh, Peter Parker's boss at the at the Daily Bugle. And we, we really wanted uh, Zeke to have some of that feel. We wanted Zeke to come across as deeply focused on, on the little world of, you know, Woodside High, really as like, Woodward and Bernstein were on Watergate. Uh, I mean, we wanted him to take this stuff very seriously and to come across, you know, really, really focused and to not see any, any comedy in the exaggerated view of, of his microcosm of a world. And that's, that's really where the fun comes from. So as we were thinking of his character introduction, that's what we were, that's what we were focusing on. Like, what can we do to just show him totally immersed and laser focused on Woodside <laughs> and no more pizza Fridays, uh, you know, and, and the, the true move scandal and the vending machine and like, all this stuff. I mean, it's a huge deal to him. And I, so I think that's what makes him fun. And I think that's also what will make Zeke successful in his life after Woodside high school is, is this guy, he's into it and he's focused and it may seem small stakes to someone else, but it's big stakes to him. And that's why he's a great, uh, you know, boss of a newspaper. Yeah. Let's talk about that some more Christian right off the bat. Like Brian's saying in your first interaction, you're taking the chance to try to get a scoop on the Lord of the Rings reboot to anyone you talk to. You're trying to get a scoop. What is it that drives Zeke's intense desire to get to the truth of everything? Is it just that he's the school's paper editor? Is there something deeper propelling his curiosity? What do you think? Well, I, I think it's just a little bit of both. I mean, I was creating this backstory about my character or whatever. And I remember sitting down, writing down, I was like, Zeke is almost like the kind of guy who would be growing up as like a little kid running around the house with one of those big uh, Sherlock Holmes magnifying glass you know, investigating everybody, trying to figure out who stole the cookie from the cookie jar. Like, he, he's that kind of guy. So, I, like, he's just very focused and driven. And, like, when you look at it from, like, if you go back and look at the very first scene of the episode where he comes out and, you know, he's making all these demands, you know, you sort of kind of just think to yourself, like, is he a teacher or a student? Like, what what is he doing? Like, he's he's surrounded by all these other kids who are the same age as him, and he's telling everybody what to do and stuff like that. And it just goes to show that he's constantly, like, thinking, like, about a whole bunch of things just flowing through his mind, like, just 24-7. So, like, when he looks at Greta and he's, like, looking at her, there's, like, so many different scenarios that is going through his mind about why she's wearing this, you know, costume. And, you know, he just wants to figure out why. And he just has, like, this need of, wanting to be the absolute best at whatever it is he does. I love that you bring up the maturity of the character because I think something striking is that he is a match for Dwight. No other character so far in Dwight's age range, or maybe even the adults as well, has come close to the maturity of Dwight, and it makes it very difficult for him to shut down your investigation and you to play off each other really well with that maturity. I tried when we introduced Zeke. I always wanted Zeke to be a little bit of a the international man of mystery. <laughs> um, I mean, let's face it, Christian's a good-looking kid. I had my James Bond a little bit, and when he comes out of the his little closet office the first time, the camera swoops by in a master, and he walks through. Everyone, who is this guy? Kind of feel, and then he walks into this um, three-quarter profile close-up with his little 
microphone as the camera's kind of low and I was trying to empower him and keep him mysterious. And it's this giant close up, which in general I say I don't want on Dwight and Shining Armor. Those aren't the, I don't want my CSI giant close ups. I want to always see a little bit more in the face so I can always see the reactions and the comedy. But we did it there just because really wanted to give him that mystery to him. So cool. It works. Okay, Jeff, who operated the drone? And if it wasn't originally you, how long did it take before you decided to take over and fly it on your own? <laughs> yes, I am known to grab the camera every once in a while. Of course, <laughs> in my other life, I was a camera operator before I was a director. So it's hard not to touch it. I did not fly the drone or take over. I definitely would have crashed it and it would have been uh, <laughs> a nightmare. We had. I was actually just... Um, kid who has got a drone that we hired for the actual on-camera drone and there's that great shot where the drone they're oh my gosh the drone and they run after it and the drone goes flying i mean again we're shooting we had to shoot all that stuff in that area of the lake and then make a move and shoot all the stuff in another and then it started pouring rain on us so i remember just telling the kid i'm like dude if you can just make it shoot through the frame and two takes both times he nailed it the thing goes flying through it to me it's it's one of the really kind of uh, off our characters, funny moments that just happens as that drone just <laughs> right through the frame. Oh, man. Well, now we know we need to get you a drone as a wrap gift. All right, Christian, Zeke wakes up in his office at school after pulling a John Nash style all nighter. Did you go full Jared Leto and stay up all night before shooting this scene? <laughs> I love that question. Um, as much as I want to say I'm like this method actor and I live and breathe my character. I'm going to have to say no, I did not do that. <laughs> but I did stay up all night memorizing my lines because I'm like such a perfectionist to the point where like if I forget like one little sentence or whatever, like I'll just be beating myself up all day and I'll just be, you know, in my head. So, you know, I try and like, you know, I'll stay up all night to like three o'clock in the morning, like just memorizing my lines and I'll be fine if I get like three hours of sleep left. I'll be OK. You know, I, this, this is what I love to do. So I'll you know, I, I did that, which sort of kind of relates to Zeke because he didn't intentionally try and stay up all night. He just worked so hard to the point where he passed out, you know. So where does Christian end and Zeke begin? There's no way to know. I'm going to jump in right there. Just off something Christian said. And I've got to throw a shout out to our entire cast um, again. 10 pages a day, our entire cast is so amazing about coming in off book. And we could swap around whatever scenes we're shooting for the day and they are ready to go, um, every one of them. And the quality of the show, what you guys get to see and enjoy is so much uh, because of how professional and prepared our cast is. And that, I mean, it just saves us every day. We can just go in, they know their dialogue, they know their characters, they've done their homework at home of what they want to accomplish in that scene, and I can point cameras at it and we can get going right away. And I just so much respect for our cast that they take it that serious and they're that prepared as a director. It's just a dream. Agreed, agreed. All right, Catherine, we hear Winnie's Lady Gaga ask, or Taylor Swift ask, depending on who you talk to, stylings in the wedding boutique for the first time since season one. And it really brings us back to a simpler time before we knew about buried bones and undead Tovenars. How on earth does your voice survive Winnie's scream singing? <laughs> yes, this is obviously terrible for your vocal cords. I, there's really no <laughs> way getting around that. Let's just be honest. But 
I think we we really lucked out. We had an amazing sound department in our first season, and we continued to have amazing crew cast everybody uh, throughout. But we had a very intelligent guy named Dave who said, we should get all of your screams and all of your songs in wilds right now in the production office the very first hour I was on the set, which was so cool because that was also the very first episode that anyone shot. And we all got to kind of be there and create this thing together. So that was like just such a wild ride for me, which I really loved. But he was very intelligent. He was like, let's get all these right now because I'm not going to have you screaming for five hours on set, you know, when we're actually in the moment. And then all of a sudden your voice doesn't work anymore and we've got nothing to go on. So, yeah, there's no easy way to do it. And it's definitely terrible for you. (laughs) But we just we just did what we had to do. And and you, you talked about your prep with your friend for the audition when you rehearsed this, were you like terrifying your neighbors? Were you in the hotel before shooting, screaming? <laughs> you know what? Once once I got the idea of exactly what I was going to do with it, I think it, I really didn't prep it too much after that. I think I just kind of really memorized the message of every single line that she was coming out with. And, you know, just a note for you, Jeff, it was really hard for me getting off book. So I, I really respect your, <laughs> your comment. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, it's take after take. We could yeah. just play you back, and it's exactly the same every time. It's amazing. I mean, we just sit in the cutting room, and we're like, wow, how does she do that? Every single time, just tone for tone. And we throw it up on the Avid with the board. It's, like, amazing. You hit the same note every time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm glad all the sweat and blood was worth it. Um But no, so I didn't try to scream too much in the hotel room. I I kept that very civil. But I know when I was working with my friend, it really was, you know, here's a funny story about me. When I was growing up, my dad nicknamed me the pterodactyl because I would be a very screamy child. And I'm a singer and I'm just a loud thespian, I guess now. So it's, I think it seems crazy when you're not that, but because of who I am, it was very fun to just like be as wild as possible. And what an excuse to do so. You cannot do that in real life. So it was certainly fun to be on a fantasy adventure series where you can get away with madness. Ditto <laughs> that. Yes. Hard agree. Much to Greta's confusion and true to its character, Woodside is very accepting of the lake monster, welcoming it with open arms and, of course, selling merchandise. How many times did you shoot Sloan in the face with the t-shirt cannon? <laughs> Um, I believe we hit him a couple of good times, but it's actually someone throwing it. The cannon itself wouldn't get it. Uh, So once again, I I just make an announcement. All right, anybody in the crew play uh, high school baseball? Uh, And we find the best person, and uh, he was a good – you know, Sloan's just always a good sport about doing all the physical stuff. You know, he is – he's Dwight. He really is. Sloan is Dwight. He just he encompasses Dwight completely. He loves the character so much. And he's never one to say, yeah, don't throw that as hard as you can in my face. No, throw it. I want to be Dwight. I want it to look like Dwight. Uh, I want it to be real. He loves the character. And that's what makes those little funny moments like that so fun. It's the same thing with Caitlin when, you know, she's running around. People run for the hills. Hide your children. I mean, it's so real for Caitlin. It's it's hysterical, those moments, and she becomes Greta. He's just misunderstood. Like, he just wants love, you know? There's nothing to be afraid of, monster. We love you. We love you! We love you! 
So cheesy. You know, it, it's this kind of gross commercialism that destroys nice little towns every day. This is not the panicked frenzy I expected. What kind of peasants aren't afraid of a dragon? Make for the hills! She'll eat your young ones! Nothing. Well, she's just minding her own business. We're just swimming around. And she's not going to eat anybody. She's just... She's trying to tell us something. But what? After spending the first half of the episode with the kids, we go to Hexla Baldrick and Jeff Hunt's candles. They're trying to fix Baldrick's staff with steampunk <laughs> spectacles and ingredients from mythical beasts. It goes awry, smoke fills the room, and they stumble out hacking and gasping for air. In the very first episode of this podcast, we discussed how Baldrick's staff makes him OP. Yeah. How do you parse out attempts at fixing the staff over the series in a way that both keeps it prevalent and doesn't become a topic of conversation in every episode? Well, that really is a, a tricky balance there because we need to check in with the staff from time to time. Obviously, this is a huge deal, as in Flip in episode two, when, when Dwight breaks the staff, we see how much this staff means to Baldrick. And multiple times we see how much... The fact that it's broken really weighs on Baldrick. So we, we need to check in. Uh, we can't fix it now or not yet, maybe I should say. But we do need to keep this idea present because it means a lot uh, to Baldrick. And he hasn't given up, but it is very difficult to fix. So we're, you're right. It's, it's a tricky balance. It's an impressive balance. I do forget about it as a viewer. And then when it comes back, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's important. And then I forget about it again. And I, it seems like some crazy alchemy that you guys are doing to manipulate the audience like that so they're not constantly thinking about it. It really works. And now people listening to this podcast, I've ruined it. I've ruined the magic and they'll think about it all the time. Okay, Christian, how did you fall out of that tree? So the stunt coordinator who was on that was very professional, very nice. Um, he built like, I think he built this seat that went into this, uh, about 10 feet up into this tree. I think they, it's one of those things that you sit on to hunt deer. Okay. Why they set up yeah. the trees, I've never understood. Like, did deer not look up? But that's what it was. It was a deer <laughs> Okay, thing. right. So I would climb up onto a ladder, and I would sit on there, and then when the director would say action, I would jump off, and I would land into this crash pad. And every time when I would fall down, I mean, jump down, I would, like, land into, like, the Spider-Man-type stance or whatever. I remember, like, the extras or whatever saying, like, you should play Miles Morales. You should play the Black Spider-Man. I'm like, yo, I would love that role. That would be really cool. <laughs> And, and just to say, because safety on set is our number one first thing above everything. Um, we have a stunt uh, man there to play Zeke. Because the deer thing, whatever, that he stood on was about seven feet up, which jumping off a six-foot wall to your feet, even that there's this pad that is landing on, is still you know, a little sketchy. But Christian worked with the stunt coordinator, and then I'll, I'll go to the stunt coordinator and go, can he really do it? Is it safe? And then the stunt coordinator has the final say off and it's like, oh yeah, Christian totally physically capable of doing this. And to make it not look like a pad, I was like, Christian, you got to land. And then you got to kind of like take the pad part out in your movement. So it looks like you hit the ground and come back up. And he nailed it. We did, I think we did it twice and it was done and perfect. All right, Catherine, Winnie comes out of the water and she's finally back 
when you shot Winnie, it was the very first episode of the show that was shot after the pilot. So now it's over a year later and you have to find that character again. What was that like for you? Oh boy. I don't know if Winnie ever really left me. I think she became such a good gag that <laughs> that it was very easy to slip back into that pocket again. <laughs> Um, she's, I mean, anybody who knows the show, literally, they just come up to me and instead of saying hello, they're like, yeah, and I'm like, hi, hi to you too. So I don't know. Um, it's just fun. Every time a Winnie comes into my life, I'm like, this is such a gift and I'm going to enjoy it because it's insanity at the highest level. Um, but it really just was like, okay, so what's her motivating factor now? She's seen this danger. She really wants to help her friends in this community. And she's also still up like deeply upset about the evil that is posing this threat to their world. So, you know, it just came back to some, actually something we played with this time that was different was last time it was really just insane noises. And this time I was like, I did a little more research on wyverns. I had more time to kind of mull over it. Cause I'd already done all the prep work the first time around. And then I, I just found like, Oh, it comes from a Latin word. And the, the first recorded, you know, image of a wyvern was drawn in, in this society in this century. And I was like, it would be cool to maybe put a Latin twist on her insanity. And so it just became easier for me to track her, her message by applying an actual language to it. And you can't hear Latin coming out of my mouth. It does not sound like Latin, but it certainly helped me just, just have a bit of logic and a little bit of math to keep me on book and keep me knowing exactly what I was communicating to Hexala, to Caitlin at, at every moment. It never feels like you are making noises for the sake of making noises. It always feels like you're trying to say something. And it's, I mean, that's a huge credit to you because I think other people could have taken this role and kind of blown it off and not really taken the thought or the time. And it makes it magical and it works so well and it's so fun and you do such a great job with it. Okay, Jeff, let's get nerdy. Tell me everything about how the transition shots of Winnie coming in and out of the lake work. So there are three parts. There are plates of the actual lake being there. So a clean plate, just the lake shot. And then we have uh, Catherine on green screen. So you put up a huge 40 by 40 green screen. Um, and she's walking on the green and it's behind her. So then we take that element, we extract that from the green. So it's just the Catherine element. And then our wizard VFX guys make that conversion. But all that is, you know, again, that's pieces that all have to be really worked out in prep. You can't just say, oh, I want to do it this way on the day, because all those pieces have to be thought of. One shot at the lake, all the stuff on the green screen shot back at the studio another day. So they've all got to really been put back together. One cool thing, an idea I came up with was I wanted the cape when uh, Winnie walks away to just do its own thing. And she does her arms and kind of like tells rise to who she is and it creates the monster. So that's actually the capes behind her. She's walking over it on the green screen. And then right when she gets past it, uh, our effects guys have cables to it and they pull the cape up and then uh, Catherine just put her arms out at the perfect time to make it all look natural. And that's how it is done. That is maybe the coolest part of it, that it really looks like it's climbing up her, like yeah. armor attaching itself. It looks Yeah, I was great. super, super happy with the way that turned out. And again, that's even that there's uh, computer-aided stuff going on, the cape itself, that's the real cape on the ground and a couple of guys with cables pulling it up just perfect to make it do that. Man, the number of special effects we've done with 
fishing line on this show. It's impressive. You pull a lot of stuff. Glimpse would probably be the episode of the ultimate of putting Ooh. stuff on fishing wire and pulling stuff everywhere. Glimpse and flip. Remember attaching that fishing wire to the oh, loop yeah, the to make it jump around? Like, yeah, a lot of that on flip, you did yourself. A lot of that fighting it, the next stuff. Like, again, that was one of those things where, yeah, we talk about a lot in prep and then sometimes it doesn't work out so well on the day. I mean, that was you, Josh. That was totally you, like, making that look real. Because, I mean, the whole last fight, with it's all you. There's no visual effects there. There's nothing special happening. You just made it work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Catherine, something I love about this show, watching it and shooting it, are the weird little moments that we find on set. You know, we're lucky enough to have Brian and Leanne and Jeff most of the time who let us find these little gems. And maybe my favorite moment of the episode is when Dwight wheels Zeke away and Hexla and Winnie just start up a casual catch-up convo on the side in Wyvernees. Was this something you two just started doing in the moment? You know, um, Hexla and I started doing that the very first, that first visit to production set in season one that I had told you about. And that was the first time we met. And she just was so in love with what I had put together for Winnie. And I think just the actor in her wanted to get in on it. And we also had a section of that first episode where we had to, we had to communicate with each other. So she's like, look, well, how can we do this? Let's run a couple of rehearsals. Let's figure it out. So we did. And then it just became like our thing. I don't know. We just kept, we just kept really enjoying making fun of each other and imitating each other and making this noise and building off of that noise and just one-upping each other in Wyvernese. So I, much I, of I that know. was <laughs> yeah. just ad lib. I mean, you two were just free flowing. Like, yeah. We could have made a 20 minute episode just about that conversation. We had so much good footage between you two. That is good to hear. <laughs> it, it's so funny. It really plays like she's asking you if there is actually possibly like a half off sale somewhere. It's like it seems like a completely irrelevant tangential conversation that you two are getting into. <laughs> All right. As a nerd who grew up reading Narnia, Lord of the Rings, Redwall, Harry Potter, all of them, all the series and many others. One of my favorite fantasy tropes is the building of an army for the inevitable final battle that is to come. Here with Winnie, we get our first pledged ally outside of our main crew. In fact, the last time we saw something like this was in the episode Winnie when Hexala and Baldrick and Dwight and Greta decide to stand together. But now we get a new member. How do you slowly build this group of allies? In Winnie's original episode, uh, Dwight saved Winnie, really out of the goodness of his heart. And again, because he was sort of smitten with her, but still uh, a lot of it was the goodness of his heart. And, and Winnie noticed that. And so basically Winnie left in episode seven of season one, owing Dwight a debt of gratitude uh, and she hadn't hadn't forgotten that and and we hadn't forgotten it either uh, so we so we always had that sort of that little card hanging up up on the wall that we knew we were going to come back to uh, partly because we left that and partly because you know Catherine was so much fun playing Winnie we knew we were going to bring her back but we wanted it to be in a very significant way. So we're waiting for just the right time. And the end of season three, as the uh, you know darkness is rising from the ground, we knew that it was it was really logical to pair Winnie with that. And so sometimes we have it you know have it planned out that we want to bring someone back, we just don't know when. And then sometimes uh, as we see a character, we think, oh, they would be great as a member of the Ghostbusters later on. So Brian, we buried the lead a little. McCullis and McCullis, the McCullis brothers. How did you find two strapping redheaded boys so similar in looks to play the crack investigative journalists upon whom Zeke so heavily relies? 
<laughs> For those of you who don't know, uh, McCullis and McCullis are played by our kids, Jude and Henry. We've actually been trying to get them in in a fun but significant uh, way from the very beginning. A quick fun fact, in the episode Shackled, when we wrote the script, uh, we had written in two uh, mismatched redheads uh, were running in the three-legged race, but our kids are tough to book. They weren't available that day. They had some basketball camp or something, so we couldn't put them in. But when we were planning this episode, we were talking with David Gallagher, the writer, and we said, this is where we want to bring our kids in. So put something in about, you know, two redheaded brothers who are very competitive, you know, that sort of thing. And so we, we did that. And then David put them in and he gave them the name McCullis and McCullis, a uh, good Irish name. David's Irish. But I remember on the day we were shooting it, Jude and Henry were in their spots and Jeff walked on set and he's like, wait, this is all wrong. This is all wrong. Don't you see these two kids here? These are the showrunners kids. You've got to make them look really good. Turn it all around. And it was it was hilarious for us. And it just added to the embarrassment of our kids. Uh, <laughs> and through the miracle of social distancing and all the schools being closed, I happen to have one of the McCullough's brothers here. Josh, if you would like to speak with him, I can uh, put him on. What luck. I would uh, love that. All right. Well, here here's my son, Jude. Hi, guys. I'm Jude, Jude as you probably know. <laughs> Jude, what is good, man? How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing great. Here's the main question I have for you. Were you coerced into this role? Were you given any choice whatsoever? Well, there was a little bit of a choice, but I mean, not too much of a choice. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, though. I'm so glad I did it. Um, it was a little bit nerve-wracking, like a little, especially more than just being a regular extra. Um, I didn't know... I'm the the bigger McCullough's brother and you, the one who's staring at the wall and trying to stare anywhere but the camera. And uh, it's it was a lot of fun, but a little, little nerve-wracking for sure. Did you and Henry rehearse it all together beforehand or did you two just show up, say, we got this and did it on the fly? Not too much rehearsing beforehand, um, but we did try and, you know, put just figure out what we were doing while it was going on and everything I tried to do. Henry didn't really want to do that. Like I said, oh, let's high five or something. He's like, oh, no, no, that'll look weird. And so we both ended up just staring pretty much. Well, that's great. You guys did have the presence of mind to knock over some furniture on the way out. And I think that is always good comedy. So well done, sir. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I didn't even mean to do that on the first time, but then they said, you don't do that again. So it worked That's out. what happens. You do something once, you have to do it 10 more times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank, thanks for hopping on with us. It's good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Of Bye. course. So, Christian, the crisis has been averted. Winnie's existence and identity are safe, but Zeke has another lead in his teeth, holes showing up all over Woodside. As an actor, your first episode on a new show, you get to land the cliffhanger. What was that like for you? Uh, I know, right? It's so cool. It's so cool. Um, I actually didn't, I didn't recognize that that was a cliffhanger line until I actually got on set and Brian came to me and he was like, you know, this is how this line is going to go. And it's going to like cut to like some cool music and it's going to lead on to like our next, our next episode. I was like, oh, okay, cool, cool. And so, you know, when I started, you know, saying the line over and over in my head and stuff, you know, I started realizing like, whoa, this is that, that famous line that's in like every other show where you know it leads off to that cool excitement that brings the audience back in for that thrill so i was like oh this is cool so i'm like 
I'm trying not to be like too overly dramatic with that line because it's so hard to do. You you start visualizing like as an actor, you start visualizing how the camera's going to go yourself and like how it's going to like push in or whatever, and you're going to look up and give this cool star glamorous look, and you know it just you know goes on and on. So I was very thankful for that for that uh, for that line, and I had a lot of fun. So yeah. <laughs> it's cool it does seem like the kind of line that is going to be in every previously on for the show for the rest of time it's just such an important thing at least for the what we call the movie of the rest of season three definitely and it's great you land it perfectly it's got gravitas it's not too much thank it's you. super fun oh yeah thank you okay well that wraps it up for season three episode six of dwight and shining armor the sunken kingdom the behind the scenes podcast about everything dwight Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Catherine. And thank you, Christian. You can follow Brian on Instagram at Brian underscore J underscore Adams. You can follow Jeff at Hunt Vision. You can follow Catherine at Catherine Lidstone. You can follow Christian at Christian G. Anderson. You can follow the show at Dwight and Shining Armor. And you can follow me at the Josh Breslow. Tune in again next week for season three, episode seven, A Bone to Pick. Till then, I'm Josh Breslow. Thanks for listening. If you're quarantined on your own, reach out to some friends and discover something new about them. If you're lucky enough to be with loved ones, try something new together. An adventure at home. It might change your life. Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom is written, edited, and hosted by Josh Breslow. The theme song is composed by Christian Davis, executive producers Leanne H. Adams and Brian J. Adams.